first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So you studied the last church, the seventh church, this morning. And I'm going to do something a little different today, because usually I've tried to, to, to partner with you as we've gone on this journey and maybe connect the principles from each church to our church and ask some hard questions. I'm not going to do that this morning. So your study in Sunday school stands alone, and we're going to kind of put a bow on this study as we take the next step into the Gospel of Mark next week. So we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to stay in Revelation, but we're going to go to the end. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 22. We're going to be at the very end. And as we go there, let me ask you a question. Any of you guys a fan of any sports teams? I'm not trying to hit on anything or make a joke about any team. I know it's hard in this day and age to be especially a college sports fan. But if you, have fan, if you have a team that comes to mind when you think about athletics or sports or cheering on a team, whether it's college or professional, why do you love those teams? Why do you love the team that you love? And we don't have to name names. You can be a, a closet Razorback fan if you want to at this point in time. That's just, that's okay. Why do you love the team that you love? Okay, you identify with them? Tradition. Tradition? Okay. Maybe your parents, maybe your father or your mother cheered on a certain team and you're just kind of carrying that on? Okay, your hometown team, you have your alma maters, your high school. You want to follow a winner? There are a lot of Alabama fans that live in Arkansas now. It's just the way it is. And I'm going to let you guys know something. A little secret. It is okay. Randy, it's okay to be a Red Sox fan. If you want to follow a winner, it's okay. I can show you the light. <laughs> I don't know if that helped me or hurt me with anything, but... <laughs> I saw a lot of Cardinal fans that were excited yesterday because their team was on. And they hadn't lost a game yet. Did they win yesterday? They did? All right. Spring training, 1-0. All right, ready to roll. New year. Now, while some of us have teams that we love and we wear a T-shirt or a ball cap to show our support, some of us, though, take the next step, and we go a long way to identify with our teams, right? We paint our faces. Maybe we paint our whole bodies. We decorate our cars. We wear crazy wigs or even outfits painted in our school colors. Either way, when you look at a true fan of a team, you see there's no question as to where their affections lie. You go into someone's house and you just, you're knocked over by their memorabilia and you're like, I know for a fact who they root for. Likewise, when Jesus returns, if we look in Revelation chapter 22, we see that this scripture teaches that God's people are going to do something to identify themselves with Christ. They're going to serve Him, they're going to enjoy Him, and they're going to proclaim Him into eternity. 
He's going to be the center of their affections. And it's going to be completely different than going to a ball game on a Saturday afternoon. We, we lament because we see stadiums full of fans cheering for some guys chasing around a ball. But then we come to churches on Sunday and we see empty seats everywhere. And we wonder, what's, what's going on? Where do our true affections lie? We're going to hit the heart today in Revelation 22 to try to bookend where we were. If you remember, when we read Revelation chapter 1, we see that opening prologue in verses 1 through 8 where John received his first vision. You see, this is one revelation to John, but he had multiple visions within the book or within the work. And in that first scene, he saw the risen Lord, and he, that Lord was walking amongst what? Lampstands, right? Or the churches during the present age. We see that in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Now, here in Revelation chapter 22, we see that last scene, that final scene of John's final vision. And here it perfectly balances the opening with the ending. For it shows the reigning Lord present with His people throughout all eternity. Now today, I want to encourage you. I want to lift your spirits as you go out and you live your life. And I know you're dealing with junk and we're dealing with mess and this world is crazy. But I want you to know, with Jesus, you are an overcomer. And you can do anything through the power of Jesus in your life. So today I want to talk about three things that overcomers enjoy based on this passage, this vision, this final picture that John has given in Revelation chapter 22. And I want to read just the first five verses of this chapter. So if you would, turn in your Bibles, 22, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, and we will read those together. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your truth. And Father, as we try to navigate through these five verses so rich and so full of implications for our life. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, encourage our spirits so that we can live for you when we leave this room. Father, move in our midst. Deliver your message. In your son's name we pray. Amen. There is so much jam packed in these five verses. So let's walk slowly and try to pick some of this apart because it's incredible the picture that we see. It's incredible the implications that we can draw from just these five verses, this final vision that John has of Jesus. Here in this final vision, the nearer John came to the center of the city, 
the more like a garden it became. Does that remind you of anything? Let me just tell you something. The Bible is incredible. Incredible. So John, in this vision, is getting closer and closer to the heart of the city where Christ is dwelling, that city that we so desperately long for. And as he gets nearer and nearer to the center, he sees that it's becoming more and more like a garden. It was like that garden of Eden that we see in Genesis, but it was better. It was better. If we think about that garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, we see that a river watered Eden, right? And now a river gushed from the throne. A provision coming directly from where? From God. A provision coming directly from God. This river stood in contrast, stark contrast to the polluted waters frequently experienced by the people in that culture. They didn't have a faucet or a purifier that they ran their water through. It was polluted water. But here John sees a picture of crystal clear water flowing from the throne of God. Contrasting from the Garden of Eden here until the center of the city. Here the water is clear to the bottom, indicating its absolute purity. This river of life flowing from God's throne is portraying the eternal life offered only by God's gracious gift. That trust and faith, that hope and belief in Jesus as the Savior of the world provides opportunity for you to drink from this crystal clear water of everlasting life, of eternal purity found coming out of the throne of God. You have access to that water from Jesus Christ. What an incredible gift that we've been given. And John is seeing this river flowing from the throne of God. Also, just like in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life is in this city. And sometimes we get bogged down. We had this discussion the other night around the table. I'll tell you something. I don't know what your dinner table's like, but the other night at our dinner table, we were like going deep into like Moses and the plagues in Egypt. You ever done that? It was fun stuff. We're like, why did this happen? Why do you think this happened? And it was just neat. We're, did you know this? Did you know that? And my kids were rattling it off to me. And it was incredible. And that's a tribute to your teachers and your Bible study that's taking place every week here at Barron Cross. And their studies. It's incredible. It's incredible. And as we see, uh, so much so, when we look at the Garden of Eden, we focus on the tree, right? The tree of what? That's the tree we focus on, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's what messed things up, right? There are two trees in the garden. In the garden we see two trees. One, the tree of life, and then we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which tree takes center stage in Genesis? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life fades. It even disappears. Read Genesis. At the very beginning of Scripture, we see a tree disappear. But at the very end, we see a tree show up center stage. The tree of life is right here in the city. 
This tree of life mysteriously disappeared, but it's back. It reappears in the final future home that we see in heaven. Wonderfully producing fruit every month. Notice that. Notice that. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Significant because what? We've got 12 tribes, right? We have 12 disciples yielding its fruit each month. How many months of the year are there? So this tree of life is producing different fruit every month. Why is that incredible? There's usually a time of harvest, right? There's seasons that we deal with. And think about in Genesis, one of the curses, the curse on man. What was his issue? He had to work the ground, didn't he? He had to work for his food. What do we see here in the tree of life in Revelation 22? The tree gives. Over and over again. Well, I'm getting so far ahead of myself. I'm just so excited. It's producing fruit every month, unlike any tree known to man. This tree's abundant harvest, as well as the healing effects of the leaves. Notice that. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree shows that heaven is filled with everything life-giving and glorious. Everyone there is healthy all the time. We go through seasons in life where we struggle, don't we? How many of you woke up this morning groaning or aching when you got out of bed? There's so many friends that we have that are suffering. We're praying for dear members of our family that are in the hospital and are dealing with illness. Maybe they have the flu. It's that time of year we just struggle with so much stuff. And we're affirmed here in Revelation that there is health perpetually. Just the leaves of the tree. Not to mention its fruit. The picture that's being painted to John is a scene of perpetual oasis. This tree bearing fruit every month. There's no season for its productivity, but the production is perpetual. Apparently, as long as the first parents were in the garden and had access to this tree, they wouldn't have suffered death. They wouldn't have dealt with sickness. They wouldn't have gone hungry. But excluded from the garden, physical death was inevitable. And that's what we deal with, and that's what we see today. But now, once again, we see that all nations have access to this tree of life. Notice that. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And therefore, we can all rejoice in eternal life. If we look at Revelation 2, 7, we see that Christ has pledged something. He's given us a pledge in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Christ has pledged to him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He promises the overcomer in the beginning of Revelation that if you will overcome, if you trust in me and you follow me, and we think about these churches in Revelation, the message to these churches was bad things are going to happen, tough times are going to come, persecution is coming your way. But if you stand firm and you hold to the truth that I've given you, you will be an overcomer. 
you will overcome, and I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here's the fulfillment. This symbolizes the complete undoing of the curse in the garden. Eating the fruit symbolizes all the divine blessings of the eternal state. Here we see that the overcomer will enjoy true paradise. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will one day enjoy true paradise forever. And this is not a 10-day cruise. This is not a week's vacation. This is not a trip to Florida on the sandy beaches. This is an eternity in paradise with everlasting water, a bottomless plate of food. Y'all like to go to buffets and just eat and eat and eat. Tell you a story about when, when, when I was in college, we would go to buffets, and I would, I would line my pockets with, with uh, napkins or and I would put as many cookies in my pockets as I could before I left, just so I'd have a snack later. But here we see that fruit is being produced over and over again, perpetually. It's never-ending. Incredible. The overcomer will enjoy true paradise with God in heaven. Number two, the overcomer will receive true blessing. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Verse 4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Now we read this, we read this, and our mind goes directly to a phrase. Because we're crazy like that, we're like squirrels, and we see something we're like, what is that? And we get distracted from the big picture, don't we? We go to foreheads, don't we? Don't we go there? Am I going to get a tattoo or a stamp on my forehead? What is this talking about? I don't get it. Okay, let's slow down and let's walk together. This garden has its river and its tree. Just like the Garden of Eden. But the difference is the Garden of Eden did not contain the throne of God and of the Lamb. But here we see it in the final scene. For this reason, this city that John is seeing here in Revelation 22 surpasses the original paradise that we see in the Garden of Eden. The throne equally belongs to the Father and the Son, God and the Lamb. Further, the garden has been the place where the curse entered in Genesis 3. Now the city is the place where no longer will there be any more curse. Incredible the contrast that we see between the original garden, and here this paradise, this picture painted to John in Revelation 22. This city, a place where there will no longer be any curse. Where the curse had been banished, only blessing remains. And here we see three of the greatest specific blessings of eternity follow in these verses. His servants, the servants of God will serve him. Did you know that eternity will not be boring? I know some of you have a picture of you floating on a cloud or strumming a harp. Maybe you're not a singer and you just don't want to sing on and on and on and on. But let me tell you something. Did you know God has given you a gift? You know God has given you desires. 
And those desires and gifts and abilities that you have to do those special things that you can do, God wants to use for His kingdom. And not only does God want to use them here, whether it's with your hands or with your mind or with your mouth, but God wants to use those in eternity. I know there's so many of you in this room that I've seen, I've seen you use your gifts. I've seen you use them here. I've seen you use them in our communities. And I know the satisfaction you get by working with your hands or serving with your heart. Now just imagine the satisfaction that it would bring doing that in eternity with Jesus in heaven. Using your gift, using your special talents to serve Him in eternity. We cannot imagine exactly what it will mean for us to serve and worship God throughout eternity. Or even that He would desire such worship. The implication, though, however, is of great activity, not passivity. In this life, His servants truly served Him, though sometimes half-heartedly and often with incomplete obedience. We can read that all throughout the New Testament. But in eternity, this, change will, this will change to perfect service. The first blessing is faultless, active service. We will be in a perpetual state of using our gifts and abilities and talents to serve in heaven. It will be an incredible day. Think about the things that you enjoy doing the most. Now what if you could use those to glorify and worship God? How incredible would that be? Not only will they serve Him, but they will also see His face. That's extremely significant if you're a student of Scripture. One of the truths embedded almost from the beginning of biblical revelation is that no human can see God face to face. Right? We see that all through the New Testament. I mean, all through the Old Testament and into the New. We see Moses' experience with the Lord was the model in Exodus chapter 33. In the Christian era, God's face is glimpsed through Christ. Sometimes, however, the way seems dark and God's face has appeared hidden even to the greatest of saints. But in eternity, the curse will be removed and all God's servants will see Him face to face. The second blessing is immediate divine presence. Now let's set some things apart real quick and let me remind you of something that you should know. There's something that we believe in called the priesthood of every believer. And that means that sets us apart from many faiths because it provides you by trusting in Christ through His work on the cross, you have gained access to God. And you don't have to go through a priest, a rabbi, or a pastor to talk to Jesus. He's even equipped you with the opportunity to intercede on the behalf of others. So guys and girls, you have the opportunity to go to Jesus and pray for your friends. Parents, you have the opportunity to go to Jesus and pray for your children. Guys, we have the responsibility to go to Jesus and pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our leaders in our church, in our community, in our nation. It is our responsibility. And we have that access by the work of Jesus on the cross. There is no separation anymore. And we have that opportunity. Now what's incredible is, 
We live in an imperfect body, right? And there are times where we just don't get it. We have that veil of sin over our face, don't we? And we just cannot see God clearly. But there will come a day when we will see Him face to face. And how incredible, how incredible will that be when we will see His face and His name will be written on our foreheads. One of the truths as we see this phrase, his name will be written on their foreheads, it, it causes us confusion or at, leads us to ask questions. But did you know to bear God's name was a privilege, but it also provided protection? The seal or name of God on someone authenticates that person is genuine, guarantees God's protection, and is a token of his reward to the overcomers. The third blessing that we receive in eternity is a guaranteed reward. And that's what we're talking about here with His name on our foreheads. That is a seal, a stamp, a mark of saying, you know what, I fall under God's authority. I fall under His protection. And I gain everything that He has. If we see that throughout the Old Testament Scripture and into the New, it's closely referred to that seal or stamp or mark that we see from leaders, right? If you hold the seal... You bear the authority, right? And a lot of those are used with a ring, a signet ring, where they would stamp their letters and they would know that this letter is official and it's from the king or it's from the leader. It's from the area director. And we see that seal or that mark placed on every believer, authenticating your relationship with him. God is affirming and securing your place in heaven. The final evil element missing from the eternal state is any curse. The curse entered human experience at the fall into sin. We see that clearly in Genesis chapter 3. But with the curse lifted comes something different, something better. The throne of God and the Lamb is there. The final state surpasses the original state of humankind. There are so many of us. We say it oftentimes, we long for the Garden of Eden. If only they had not messed things up. No, 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 no. I don't long for that garden. I long for the new Jerusalem. As my children would say, when is Jesus coming back and bringing his home back here? What an incredible time it will be when we are in his presence. Worshiping him in the true garden. Truth number three, the overcomer will reign forever. Look at verse five. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Verse five concludes the vision at the highest point, at the highest possible level. No more night pictures the complete end of all darkness that sin and evil brought. This can happen only because of the direct personal presence of the Lord God who will give them light. Just as Jesus is the light of the world during this present age, so in eternity He is the everlasting light. So neither the light of a lamp to illuminate the night or the light of the sun to illuminate the day can add anything to the light of God's presence. This concluding promise is that the city's citizens will reign forever and ever.
we have this problem in our house. I don't know if it's a problem in your house. Somehow, every light switch in our house incredibly just comes on. Over and over again. Like, I will walk down the hallway and every light will be off and I will turn around and they'll all be back on. Not only that, but I'll walk into a room and there will be like six different lights on in that room. And what do we say to those kids? Do you want to pay for the light bill? But why do we do that? Why do kids do that? They want the light on. They don't want to be in darkness. Why, do we, why are night lights so popular to light up the night? Because there's evil lurking in the darkness, is there not? Let me tell you something. If you're a kid in this room, look at me. The greatest light you can ever have in your life is the light of Jesus Christ. And he attacks all the darkness in this world. And with Jesus, nothing can stand. Against Jesus, nothing can stand. Jesus is the true light of the world. We are told that in John. John so clearly tells us that. So here we see this picture painted in this final vision that there's not even a need for the sun anymore or even a lamp because there's a light that's going to shine that's going to penetrate everything else. And that, that light is going to be the center of the heart of heaven. And that light comes from who? From Jesus. John's description of the new Eden concludes with the most important point. Look at verse 5 again. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign, how long? Forever and ever. What's the good news in this, vo- in this verse? You will reign with Jesus forever. So how does that change your life? Knowing that's your final destination, does that change anything? How you act or what you do now? Revelation 22.5 concludes at the most exalted point possible. There's an end to all the darkness of sin and evil, represented by the first, first by the banishment of night, and second by the eternal presence of the light provided by the Lord God. Jesus, the light of the world, is the perfect light for eternity. That this reality awaits us should motivate us to live with a sense of urgency, unleashing compassion in the world to help God restore what is broken. This sense of urgency permeates the close of Revelation and the canon of Scripture. The promise is assured. The promise of life, the promise of hope, is assured. Through Jesus. But my friend, the task is yours. The task of reconciling the world back to Him is on your shoulders. The task of taking the mantle and standing firm on the faith is yours to bear. Do you see the picture that God has painted for us? The grand narrative of Scripture is complete. The design of creation has been made whole, perfected by the work of Christ. A line runs throughout the Word of God, uniting the Garden of Eden 
with the garden in paradise, and that line is Jesus. He has been at work since the beginning to unite all mankind back to himself. I'm a part of that story. And so are you. The revelation to John is a call to each, each follower of Jesus to overcome. This passage promises that the overcomer will enjoy true paradise, receive true blessing, and reign forever with Christ. So the question today is, are you an overcomer? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? And are you ready for that day when you will reign forever with Him? The King of kings and the Lord of lords is inviting you to co-reign with Him forever. Why would you not want to be a part of that? Are you an overcomer? My friend, are you up for the task? Are you ready to reign with Jesus? What are you doing now to show the world that you're ready to roll? Let's pray. I say it every week, God. And every week I open your word and I'm blown away by how incredible Scripture is. How alive and living this book that we hold in our hands is and how incredibly powerful it is in impacting our lives and changing our hearts. And Father, as we read that final vision that you gave to John, and we see the picture painted of heaven and the opportunity that we have to be in your presence, to receive your blessing, and to reign with you, it's so humbling. We look at our lives and we think, I am not ready for that, God. There's so much junk, so many things I have to work on, I've got to deal with before I'm ready for that. Father, I pray today that we would lean into you and that we would hand our hearts over to you and trust in your cleansing power. Father, that you would mold us and prepare us for the work that you have in this world to bring others back to you and so that we can all reign together forever with you. So, Father, I ask you now to just to move in the hearts of our people. Whatever word you have for them, Father, I just pray that they would respond during this time. And they would be ready for the task that's in front of them. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So before we close our service, we'd like to just provide an opportunity.